This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mark Nelson. Love Among the Chickens by P. G. Woodhouse. Chapter 15 The Arrival of Nemesis. Some people do not believe in presentiments. They attribute that curious feeling that something unpleasant is going to happen to such mundane causes as liver, or a chill, or the weather. For my own part, I think there is more in the matter than the casual observer might imagine. I awoke three days after my meeting with the professor at the clubhouse, filled with a dull foreboding. Somehow, I seemed to know that the day was going to turn out badly for me. It may have been liver, or a chill, but it was certainly not the weather. The morning was perfect, the most glorious of a glorious summer. There was a haze over the valley, and out to sea, which suggested a warm noon, when the sun should have begun the serious duties of the day. The birds were singing in the trees and breakfasting on the lawn, while Edwin, seated on one of the flower-beds, watched them with the eye of a connoisseur. Occasionally, when a sparrow hopped in his direction, he would make a sudden spring, and the bird would fly away to the other side of the lawn. I had never seen Edwin catch a sparrow. I believe they looked on him as a bit of a crank, and humored him by coming within springing distance just to keep him amused. Dashing young cock-sparrows would show off before their particular hen-sparrows, and earn a cheap reputation for dare-devilry by going within so many years of Edwin's lair and then darting away. Bob was in his favorite place on the gravel. I took him with me down to the cob to watch me bathe. "'What's the matter with me today, Robert old son?' I asked him as I dried myself. He blinked lazily, but contributed no suggestion. "'It's no good-looking bored,' I went on because I'm going to talk about myself, however much it bores you. Here am I, as fit as a prize-fighter, living in the open air for I don't know how long, eating good, plain food, bathing every morning, sea-bathing, mind you, and yet what's the result? I feel beastly. Bob yawned and gave a little whine. Yes, I said, I know I'm in love, but that can't be it because I was in love just as much a week ago, and I felt all right then. But isn't she an angel, Bob, eh, isn't she? And didn't you feel bucked when she patted you? Of course you did. Anybody would. But how about Tom Chase? Don't you think he's a dangerous man? He calls her by her Christian name, you know, and behaves generally as if she belonged to him. And he sees her every day while I have to trust to meeting her at odd times. And then I generally feel such a fool I can't think of anything to talk about except golf and the weather. He probably sings duets with her after dinner, and you know what comes of duets after dinner. Here Bob, who had been trying for some time to find a decent excuse for getting away, pretended to see something of importance at the other end of the cob, and trotted off to investigate it, leaving me to finish dressing by myself. Of course, I said to myself, it may be merely hunger. I may be all right after breakfast. But at present, I seem to be working up for a really fine fit of the blues. 
I feel bad. I whistled to Bob and started for home. On the beach I saw the professor some little distance away and waved my towel in a friendly manner. He made no reply. Of course, it was possible that he had not seen me, but for some reason his attitude struck me as ominous. As far as I could see, he was looking straight at me, and he was not a short-sighted man. I could think of no reason why he should cut me. We had met on the links on the previous morning, and he had been friendliness itself. He had called me, me dear boy, supplied me with a gin and ginger beer at the clubhouse, and generally behaved as if he had been David and I Jonathan. Yet in certain moods we are inclined to make mountains out of molehills, and I went on my way, puzzled and uneasy, with a distinct impression that I had received the cut direct. I felt hurt. What had I done that Providence should make things so unpleasant for me? It would be a little hard, as Eugridge would have said, if, after all my trouble, the professor had discovered some fresh grievance against me. Perhaps Eucridge had been irritating him again. I wished he would not identify me so completely with Eucridge. I could not be expected to control the man. Then I reflected that they could hardly have met in the few hours between my parting from the professor at the clubhouse and my meeting with him on the beach. Eucridge rarely left the farm. When he was not working among the fowls, he was lying on his back in the paddock, resting his massive mind. I came to the conclusion that after all the professor had not seen me. "'I'm an idiot, Bob,' I said, as we turned in at the farm gate, and I let my imagination run away with me. Bob wagged his tail in approval of the sentiment. Breakfast was ready when I got in. There was a cold chicken on the sideboard, devil chicken on the table, a trio of boiled eggs, and a dish of scrambled eggs. As regarded quantity, Mrs. Beale never failed us. Eucridge was sorting the letters. "'Morning, Garney,' he said. "'One for you, Millie.' "'It's from Aunt Elizabeth,' said Mrs. Eucridge, looking at the envelope. I had only heard casual mention of this relative hitherto, but I had built up a mental picture of her partly from remarks which Eucridge had let fall but principally from the fact that he had named the most malignant hen in our fowl-run after her. A severe lady, I imagined, with a cold eye. "'Wish she'd enclose a check,' said Eucridge. "'She could spare it. You've no idea, Garney, old man, how disgustingly and indecently rich that woman is. She lives in Kensington on an income which would do her well in Park Lane.' but as a touching proposition she had proved almost negligible. She steadfastly refuses to part. I think she would, dear, if she knew how much we needed it. But I don't like to ask her. She's so curious and says such horrid things. She does, agreed Eucridge gloomily. He spoke as one who had had experience. Two for you, Garney. All the rest for me. Ten of them and all bills. He spread the envelopes out on a table and drew one at a venture. Whiteley's, he said, getting jumpy, are in receipt of my favor of the seventh instant and are at a loss to understand it. 
It's rummy about these blighters, but they never seem able to understand a damn thing. It's hard. You put things in words of one syllable for them, and they just goggle and wonder what it all means. They want something on account. Upon my Sam, I'm disappointed with Whiteleys. I'd been thinking in rather a kindly spirit of them, and feeling that they were a more intelligent lot than Herod's. I'd half a mind to give Herod's the missin' balk and hand my whole trade over to these fellows. But not now, dash it! Whiteleys have disappointed me. From the way they write, you'd think they thought I was doing it all for fun. How can I let them have their infernal money when there isn't any? Here's one from Dorchester. Smith, the chap we got the gramophone from, wants to know when I'm going to settle up for sixteen records. Sordid brute! I wanted to get on with my own correspondence, but Eucridge held me with a glittering eye. The chicken men, the dealer people, you know, want me to pay for the first lot of hens. Considering that they all died of roop, and that I was going to send them back anyhow after I'd got them to hatch out a few chickens, I call that cool. I mean to say, business is business, but that's what these fellows don't seem to understand. I can't afford to pay enormous sums for birds which die off quicker than I can get them in. I shall never speak to Aunt Elizabeth again, said Mrs. Eugridge, suddenly. She had dropped the letter she had been reading and was staring indignantly in front of her. There were two little red spots on her cheeks. "'What's the matter, old chap?' inquired Eugridge affectionately, glancing up from his pile of bills and forgetting his own troubles in an instant. "'Buck up! Aunt Elizabeth been getting on your nerves again? What's she been saying this time?' Mrs. Eugridge left the room with a sob. Eugridge sprang at the letter. "'If that demon doesn't stop writing her infernal letters and upsetting Millie, I shall strangle her with my bare hands, regardless of her age and sex.' He turned over the pages of the letter till he came to the passage which had caused the trouble. "'Well, upon my Sam! Listen to this, Garney, old horse. You tell me nothing regarding the success of this chicken farm of yours, and I confess that I find your silence ominous.' You know my opinion of your husband. He is perfectly helpless in any matter requiring the exercise of a little common sense and business capability. He stared at me, amazed. I like that. Pon my soul, this is really rich. I could have believed almost anything of that blighted female, but I did think she had a reasonable amount of intelligence. Why, you know that it's just in matters requiring common sense and business capability that I come out really strong. Of course, old man, I replied dutifully, the woman's a fool. That's what she calls me two lines further on. No wonder Millie was upset. Why can't these cats leave people alone? Oh, woman, woman, I threw in helpfully. Always interfering, rotten, and backbiting, awful. I shan't stand it. I shouldn't. Look here, on the next page she calls me a gaby. It's time you took a strong line. And in the very next sentence refers to me as a perfect guffin. What's a guffin, Garney, old boy? 
I considered the point. Broadly speaking, I should say one who guffs. I believe it's actionable. I shouldn't wonder. Eukridge rushed to the door. Millie! He slammed the door, and I heard him dashing upstairs. I turned to my letters. One was from Lickford, with a Cornish postmark. I glanced through it and laid it aside for a more exhaustive perusal. The other was in a strange handwriting. I looked at the signature. Patrick Derrick. This was queer. What had the professor to say to me? The next moment my heart seemed to spring to my throat. "'Sir,' the letter began, "'a pleasant cheery opening. Then it got off the mark, so to speak, like lightning. There was no sparring for an opening, no dignified parade of set phrases leading up to the main point. It was the letter of a man who was almost too furious to write. It gave me the impression that if he had not written it, he would have been obliged to have taken some very violent form of exercise by way of relief to his soul. You will be good enough to look on our acquaintance as closed. I have no wish to associate with persons of your stamp. If we should happen to meet, you will be good enough to treat me as a total stranger, as I shall treat you. And, if I might be allowed to give you a word of advice, I should recommend you in future— when you wish to exercise your humour, to do so in some less practical manner than by bribing boatmen to upset your friends, crossed out thickly, and acquaintances substituted. If you require further enlightenment in this matter, the enclosed letter may be of service to you. With which he remained mine faithfully, Patrick Derrick. The enclosed letter was from one Jane Muspratt. It was bright and interesting. Dear Sir, my Harry, Mr. Hawk, says to me how it was him upsetting the boat and you, not because he is not steady in a boat, which he is no man more so in Combe Regis, but because one of the gentlemen what keeps chickens up the hill, the little one, Mr. Garnick his name is, says to him, Hawk, I'll give you a sovereign to upset Mr. Derrick in your boat, and my Harry, being easily led, was took in and did. But— He's sorry now, and wishes he hadn't, and says he'll never do a practical joke again for anyone, even for a banknote. Yours obediently, Jane Muspratt. Oh, woman, woman! At the bottom of everything, history is full of tragedies caused by the lethal sex. Who cost Mark Antony the world? A woman. Who let Samson in so atrociously? woman again. Why did Bill Bailey leave home? Once more, because of a woman. And here was I, Jerry Garnet, harmless, well-meaning writer of minor novels, going through the same old mill. I cursed Jane Muspratt. What chance had I with Phyllis now? Could I hope to win over the professor again? I cursed Jane Muspratt for the second time. My thoughts wandered to Mr. Harry Hawk. The villain! The scoundrel! What business had he to betray me? Well, I could settle with him. The man who lays a hand upon a woman, save in the way of kindness, is justly disliked by society. 
So the woman Muspratt, culpable as she was, was safe from me. But what of the man Hawk? There no such consideration swayed me. I would interview the man Hawk. I would give him the most hectic ten minutes of his career. I would say things to him the recollection of which would make him start up shrieking in his bed in the small hours of the night. I would arise and be a man and slay him. Take him grossly, full of bread, with all his crimes broad-blown, as flush as may, at gaming, swearing, or about some act that had no relish of salvation in it. The demon! My life ruined, my future grey and black, my heart shattered. And why? Because of the scoundrel Hawk. Phyllis would meet me in the village, on the cob, on the links, and pass by as if I were the invisible man. And why? Because of the reptile Hawk, the worm Hawk, the dastard and varlet Hawk. I crammed my hat on and hurried out of the house towards the village. End of chapter 15「and, after having drawn all his familiar haunts, found him at length leaning over the sea-wall near the church, gazing thoughtfully into the waters below. I confronted him. "'Well,' I said, "'you're a beauty, aren't you?' He eyed me owlishly. Even at this early hour I was grieved to see he showed signs of having looked on the bitter while it was brown. His eyes were filmy, and his manner aggressively solemn. "'Beauty?' he echoed. "'What have you got to say for yourself?' "'Say for self.' It was plain that he was engaged in pulling his faculties together by some laborious process known only to himself. At present my words conveyed no meaning to him. He was trying to identify me. He had seen me before somewhere, he was certain, but he could not say where or who I was. "'I want to know,' I said, "'what induced you to be such an abject idiot as to let our arrangements get known.' I spoke quietly. I was not going to waste the choicer flowers of speech on a man who was incapable of understanding them. Later on, when he had awakened to a sense of his position, I would begin really to talk to him. He continued to stare at me. Then a sudden flash of intelligence lit up his features. "'Mr. Garnick,' he said at last. "'From Chicken Farm,' he continued, 
with the triumphant air of a cross-examining king's counsel who has at last got on the track? Yes, I said. Up top the hill, he proceeded, clinchingly. He stretched out a huge hand. How you? he inquired with a friendly grin. I want to know, I said distinctly, what you've got to say for yourself after letting our affair with the professor become public property. He paused a while in thought. Dear sir, he said at last, as if he were dictating a letter, dear sir, I owe you X, X, P. He waved his hand, as who should say, it's a stiff job, but I'm going to do it. Explation, he said. You do, I said grimly. I should like to hear it. Dear sir, listen me. Go on, then. You came me. You said, Hawk, Hawk, old friend, listen me. You tipped this old bufflehead into water, you said, and gormed if I don't give ye a pound note. That's what you said me. Isn't that what you said me? I did not deny it. Farewell, I said you. Right, I said. I tipped the old soul into water, and got the pound note. Yes, you took care of that. All this is quite true. But it's beside the point. We're not disputing about what happened. What I want to know, for the third time, is what made you let the cat out of the bag. Why couldn't you keep quiet about it? He waved his hand. Dear sir, he replied, this way. Listen me. It was a tragic story that he unfolded. My wrath ebbed as I listened. After all, the fellow was not so greatly to blame. I felt that in his place I should have acted as he had done. It was fate's fault and fate's alone. It appeared that he had not come well out of the matter of the accident. I had not looked at it hitherto from his point of view. While the rescue had left me the popular hero, it had had quite the opposite result for him. He had upset his boat and would have drowned his passenger, said public opinion, if the young hero from London, myself, had not plunged in and at the risk of his life brought the professor ashore. Consequently, he was despised by all as an inefficient boatman. He became a laughing-stock. The local wags made laborious jests when he passed. They offered him fabulous sums to take their worst enemies out for a row with him. They wanted to know when he was going to school to learn his business. In fact, they behaved as wags do, and always have done, at all times all over the world. Now, all this, it seemed, Mr. Hawk would have borne cheerfully and patiently for my sake, or, at any rate, for the sake of my crisp pound note I had given him, but a fresh factor appeared in the problem, complicating it grievously. To it, Miss Jane Muspratt. She said to me, explained Mr. Hawk with pathos, Harry Hawk, she said, you'm a girt fool and I don't marry no one as is ain't to be trusted in a boat by hisself. 
and what has jokes made about him by that Tom Lee? I punch Tom Lee, observed Mr. Hawk parenthetically. So, she said me, you can go away, and I don't want to see you again. This heartless conduct on the part of Miss Muspratt had had the natural result of making him confess in self-defense, and she had written to the professor the same night. I forgave Mr. Hawk. I think he was hardly sober enough to understand, for he betrayed no emotion. It is fate, Hawk, I said, simply fate. There is a divinity that shapes our ends, rough-hew them how we will, and it's no good grumbling. Yes, said Mr. Hawk, after chewing this sentiment for a while in silence. So she said me, Hawk, she said like that, you're a girt fool. That's all right, I replied. I quite understand. As I say, it's simply fate. Good-bye, and I left him. As I was going back, I met the professor and Phyllis. They passed me without a look. I wandered on in quite a fervor of self-pity. I was in one of those moods when life suddenly seems to become irksome, when the future stretches black and gray in front of me. I should have liked to have faded almost imperceptibly from the world, like Mr. Bardell, even if, as in his case, it had involved being knocked on the head with a pint pot in a public-house cellar. In such a mood it is imperative that one should seek distraction. The shining example of Mr. Harry Hawk did not lure me. Taking to drink would be a nuisance. Work was what I wanted. I would toil like a navvy all day among the fowls, separating them when they fought, gathering in the eggs when they laid, chasing them across country when they got away, and even, if necessity arose, painting their throats with turpentine when they were stricken with roop. Then, after dinner, when the lamps were lit, and Mrs. Eukridge nursed Edwin and sewed, and Eukridge smoked cigars and incited the gramophone to murder mumbling Mose, I would steal away to my bedroom and write, and write, and write, and go on writing till my fingers were numb and my eyes refused to do their duty. And, when time had passed, I might come to feel that it was all for the best. A man must go through the fire before he can write his masterpiece. We learn in suffering what we teach in song. What we lose on the swings we make up on the roundabouts. Jerry Garnet, the man, might become a depressed, hopeless wreck, with the iron planted immovably in his soul, but Jeremy Garnet, the author, should turn out such a novel of gloom that strong critics would weep and the public jostle for copies till Mudie's doorway became a shambles. Thus might I some day feel that all this anguish was really a blessing, effectively disguised. But I doubted it. We were none of us very cheerful now at the farm. Even Eukridge's spirit was a little daunted by the bills which poured in by every post. It was as if the tradesmen of the neighborhood had formed a league, and were working it in concert. Or it may have been due to thought-waves. Little accounts came not in single spies, but in battalions. The popular demand for the sight of the color of his money grew daily. 
every morning at breakfast he would give us fresh bulletins of the state of mind of each of our creditors, and thrill us with the announcement that Whiteley's was getting cross and Harrod's jumpy, or that the bearings of Dawlish the grocer were becoming overheated. We lived in a continual atmosphere of worry. Chicken and nothing but chicken at meals, and chicken and nothing but chicken between meals had frayed our nerves. An air of defeat hung over the place. We were a beaten side, and we realized it. We had been playing an uphill game for nearly two months, and the strain was beginning to tell. Eukridge became uncannily silent. Mrs. Eukridge, though she did not understand, I fancy, the details of the matter, was worried because Eukridge was. Mrs. Beale had long since been turned into a soured cynic by the lack of chances vouchsafed her for the exercise of her art. And as for me, I have never since spent so profoundly miserably a week. I was not even permitted the anodyne of work. There seemed to be nothing to do on the farm. The chickens were quite happy, and only asked to be let alone and allowed to have their meals at regular intervals. And every day one or more of their number would vanish into the kitchen, Mrs. Beale would serve up the corpse in some cunning disguise, and we would try to delude ourselves into the idea that it was something altogether different. There was one solitary gleam of variety in our menu. An editor sent me a check for a set of verses. We cashed that check and trooped round the town in a body, laying out the money. We bought a leg of mutton and a tongue and sardines and pineapple chunks and potted meat and many other noble things and had a perfect banquet. Mrs. Beale, with the scenario of a smile on her face, the first that she had worn in these days of stress, brought in the joint and uncovered it with an air. "'Thank God!' said Eukridge, as he began to carve. It was the first time I had ever heard him say a grace, and if ever an occasion merited such a deviation from habit, this occasion did. After that we relapsed into routine again. Deprived of physical labor, with the exception of golf and bathing, trivial sports compared with work in the foul run at its hardest, I tried to make up for it by working at my novel. It refused to materialize. The only progress I achieved was with my villain. I drew him from the professor, and made him a blackmailer. He had several other social defects, but that was his profession. That was the thing he did really well. It was on one of the many occasions on which I had sat in my room, pen in hand, through the whole of a lovely afternoon, with no better result than a slight headache, that I bethought me of that little paradise on the Ware Cliff, hung over the sea and backed by green woods. I had not been there for some time, owing principally to an entirely erroneous idea that I could do more solid work sitting in a straight hard chair at a table than lying on soft turf with the sea wind in my eyes. But now the desire to visit that little clearing again drove me from my room. In the drawing-room below the gramophone was dealing brassily with Mr. Blackman. Outside the sun was just thinking of setting. The Ware Cliff was the best medicine for me. What does Kipling say? 
and soon you will find that the sun and the wind, and the gin of the garden too, have lightened the hump, camellius hump, the hump that is black and blue. His instructions include digging with a hoe and a shovel also, but I could omit that. The sun and the wind were what I needed. I took the upper road. In certain moods I preferred it to the path along the cliff. I walked fast. The exercise was soothing. To reach my favorite clearing I had to take to the fields on the left, and strike downhill in the direction of the sea. I hurried down the narrow path. I broke into the clearing at a jog-trot and stood panting. And, at the same moment, looking cool and beautiful in her white dress, Phyllis entered in from the other side. Phyllis, without the professor. End of chapter 16「This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mark Nelson. Love Among the Chickens by P. G. Woodhouse. Chapter 17 of A Sentimental Nature. She was wearing a Panama, and she carried a sketching-block and camp-stool. "'Good evening,' I said. "'Good evening,' said she. "'It is curious how different the same words can sound when spoken by different people. My good evening might have been that of a man with a particularly guilty conscience, caught in the act of doing something more than usually ignoble. She spoke like a rather offended angel.' "'It's a lovely evening,' I went on, pluckily. "'Very. "'The sun set. "'Yes. "'Er—' "'She raised a pair of blue eyes, "'devoid of all expression save a faint suggestion of surprise, "'and gazed through me for a moment "'at some object a couple of thousand miles away, "'and lowered them again, "'leaving me with a vague feeling "'there was something wrong with my personal appearance.' Very calmly she moved to the edge of the cliff, arranged her camp-stool, and sat down. Neither of us spoke a word. I watched her while she filled a little mug with water from a little bottle, opened her paint-box, selected a brush, and placed her sketching-block in position. She began to paint. Now, by all the laws of good taste, I should before this have made a dignified exit. It was plain that I was not to be regarded as an essential ornament of this portion of the Ware Cliff. By now, if I had been the perfect gentleman, I ought to have been a quarter of a mile away. But there is a definite limit to what a man can do. I remained. The sinking sun flung a carpet of gold across the sea. Phyllis' hair was tinged with it. Little waves tumbled lazily on the beach below. Except for the song of a distant blackbird running through its repertoire before retiring for the night, everything was silent. She sat there, dipping and painting, and dipping again, and never a word for me, standing patiently and humbly behind her. 
"'Miss Derrick,' I said. She half turned her head. "'Yes?' "'Why won't you speak to me?' I said. "'I don't understand you.' "'Why won't you speak to me?' "'I think you know, Mr. Garnet.' "'It is because of the boat accident.' "'Accident?' "'Episode,' I amended. She went on painting in silence. From where I stood I could see her profile. Her chin was tilted. Her expression was determined. "'Is it?' I said. "'Need we discuss it?' "'Not if you do not wish it.' I paused. "'But,' I added, "'I should have liked a chance to defend myself. What glorious sunsets there have been these last few days!' I believe we shall have this sort of weather for another month. I should not have thought that possible. The glass is going up, I said. I was not talking about the weather. It was dull of me to introduce such a worn-out topic. You said you could defend yourself. I said I should like the chance to do so. You have it. That's very kind of you. Thank you. Is there any reason for gratitude? Every reason. Go on, Mr. Garnet. I can listen while I paint. Please sit down. I don't like being talked to from a height. I sat down on the grass in front of her, feeling as I did so that the change of position in a manner clipped my wings. It is difficult to speak movingly while sitting on the ground. Instinctively I avoided eloquence. Standing up, I might have been pathetic and pleading. Sitting down, I was compelled to be matter-of-fact. You remember, of course, the night you and Professor Derrick dined with us? When I say dined, I use the word in a loose sense. For a moment, I thought she was going to smile. We were both thinking of Edwin. But it was only for a moment, and then her face grew cold once more, and the chin resumed its angle of determination. "'Yes,' she said. "'You remember the unfortunate ending of the festivities?' "'Well?' "'If you recall that at all clearly, you will also remember that the fault was not mine, but Eucridge's.' "'Well?' "'It was his behavior that annoyed Professor Derrick. The position, then, was this— that I was to be cut off from the pleasantest friendship I had ever formed. I stopped for a moment. She bent a little lower over the easel, but remained silent. Simply through the tactlessness of a prize idiot. I like Mr. Eucridge. I like him, too, but I can't pretend that he is anything but an idiot at times. Well? I naturally wish to mend matters. It occurred to me that an excellent way would be by doing your father a service. It was seeing him fishing that put the idea of a boat accident into my head. I hoped for a genuine boat accident, but those things only happen when one does not want them, so I determined to engineer one. You didn't think of the shock to my father? I did. It worried me very much. But you upset him all the same. Reluctantly. She looked up, and our eyes met. I could detect no trace of forgiveness in hers. 
you behaved abominably, she said. I played a risky game, and I lost. And I shall now take the consequences. With luck I should have won. I did not have luck, and I am not going to grumble about it. But I am grateful to you for letting me explain. I should not have liked you to go on thinking that I played practical jokes on my friends. That is all I have to say. I think it was kind of you to listen. Good-bye, Miss Derrick. I got up. Are you going? Why not? Please sit down again. But you wished to be alone. Please sit down. There was a flush on the cheek turned towards me, and the chin was tilted higher. I sat down. To westward the sky changed the hue of a bruised cherry. The sun had sunk below the horizon, and the sea looked cold and leaden. The blackbird had long since flown. "'I am glad you told me, Mr. Garnet.' She dipped her brush in the water. "'Because I don't like to think badly of people.' She bent her head over the painting. "'Though I still think you behaved very wrongly, and I am afraid my father will never forgive you for what you did.' Her father, as if he counted. "'But you do?' I said eagerly. "'I think you are less to blame than I thought you were at first. No more than that? You can't expect to escape all consequences. You did a very stupid thing. I was tempted. The sky was a dull gray now. It was growing dusk. The grass on which I sat was wet with dew. I stood up. Isn't it getting a little dark for painting? I said. Are you sure you won't catch cold? It's very damp. Perhaps it is. And it is late, too. She shut her paint-box and emptied the little mug onto the grass. "'May I carry your things?' I said. I think she hesitated, but only for a moment. I possessed myself of the camp-stool, and we started on our homeward journey. We were both silent. The spell of the quiet summer evening was on us. "'And all the air a solemn stillness holds,' she said softly. I love this cliff, Mr. Garnet. It's the most soothing place in the world. I found it so this evening. She glanced at me quickly. You're not looking well, she said. Are you sure you are not overworking yourself? No, it's not that. Somehow we had stopped, as if by agreement, and were facing each other. There was a look in her eyes I had never seen there before. The twilight hung like a curtain between us and the world. We were alone together in a world of our own. "'It is because I had offended you,' I said. She laughed a high, unnatural laugh. "'I have loved you ever since I first saw you,' I said doggedly. End of chapter 17
Reading by Mark Nelson. Love Among the Chickens by P. G. Woodhouse. Chapter Eighteen. Eugridge gives me advice. Hours after, or so it seemed to me, we reached the spot at which our ways divided. We stopped, and I felt as if I had been suddenly cast back into the workaday world from some distant and pleasanter planet. I think Phyllis must have felt much the same sensation, for we both became on the instant intensely practical and businesslike. "'But about your father,' I said. "'That's the difficulty. "'He won't give us his consent? "'I'm afraid he wouldn't dream of it. "'You can't persuade him? "'I can in most things, but not in this. "'You see, even if nothing had happened, "'he wouldn't like to lose me just yet because of Nora.' "'Nora?' "'My sister. "'She's going to be married in October. "'I wonder if we shall ever be as happy as they will.' happy they will be miserable compared with us not that i know who the man is why tom of course you mean to say you really didn't know tom tom chase of course i gasped well i'm hanged i said when i think of the torments i've been through because of that wretched man and all for nothing i don't know what to say you don't like Tom? Very much. I always did. But I was awfully jealous of him. You weren't. How silly of you. Of course I was. He was always about with you and called you Phyllis, and generally behaved as if you and he were the heroine and hero of a musical comedy. So what else could I think? I heard you singing duets after dinner once. I drew the worst conclusions. When was that? What were you doing there? It was shortly after Eugridge had got on your father's nerves, and nipped our acquaintance in the bud. I used to come every night to the hedge opposite your drawing-room window, and brood there by the hour. Poor old boy! Hoping to hear you sing. And when you did sing, and he joined in all flat, I used to swear you'll probably find most of the bark scorched off the tree I leaned against. Poor old man! Still, it's all over now, isn't it? And when I was doing my very best to show off before you at tennis, you went away just as I got into form. I'm very sorry, but I couldn't know, could I? I thought you always played like that. I know, I knew you would. It nearly turned my hair white. I didn't see how a girl could ever care for a man who was so bad at tennis. One doesn't love a man because he's good at tennis. What does a girl see to love in a man? I inquired abruptly, and paused on the verge of a great discovery. Oh, I don't know, she replied, most unsatisfactorily. And I could draw no views from her. But about father, she said, what are we to do? He objects to me. He's perfectly furious with you. Blow, blow, I said, thou winter wind, thou art not so unkind. He'll never forgive you, as man's ingratitude. I saved his life, at the risk of my own. 
Why, I believe I've got a legal claim on him. Who ever heard of a man having his life saved and not being delighted when his preserver wanted to marry his daughter? Your father is striking at the very root of the short story-writer's little earnings. He mustn't be allowed to do it. Jerry, I started. Again, I said. What? Say it again. Do, please, now. Very well. Jerry. It was the first time you had called me by my Christian name. I don't suppose you've the remotest notion how splendid it sounds when you say it. There is something poetical, almost holy, about it. Jerry, please, say on. Do be sensible. Don't you see how serious this is? We must think how we can make father consent. All right, I said. We'll tackle the point. I'm sorry to be frivolous, but I'm so happy I can't keep it all in. I've got you, and I can't think of anything else. Try. I'll pull myself together. Now, say on once more. We can't marry without his consent. Why not, I said, not having a marked respect for the professor's whims. Gretna Green is out of date, but there are registrars. I hate the very idea of a registrar, she said with decision. Besides, well, poor father would never get over it. We've always been such friends. If I married against his wishes, he would—oh, you know—not let me near him again and not write to me. And he would hate it all the time he was doing it. He would be bored to death without me. Who wouldn't? I said. Because, you see, Nora has never been quite the same. She has spent such a lot of her time on visits to people that she and father don't understand each other so well as he and I do. She would try and be nice to him, but she wouldn't know him as I do. And besides, she will be with him such a little now that she is going to be married. But look here, I said, this is absurd. You say your father would never see you again and so on if you married me. Why, it's nonsense. It isn't as if I were a sort of social outcast. We were the best of friends till that man Hawk gave me away like that. I know, but he's very obstinate about some things. You see, he thinks the whole thing has made him look ridiculous, and it will take him a long time to forgive you for that. I realize the truth of this. One can pardon any injury to oneself unless it hurts one's vanity. Moreover, even in a genuine case of rescue, the rescued man must always feel a little aggrieved with his rescuer when he thinks the matter over in cold blood. He must regard him unconsciously as the super regards the actor-manager, indebted to him for the means of supporting existence, but grudging him the limelight and the center of the stage and the applause. Besides, everyone instinctively dislikes being under an obligation which they can never wholly repay and when a man discovers that he has experienced all these mixed sensations for nothing, as the professor had done, his wrath is likely to be no slight thing. Taking everything into consideration, 
I could not but feel that it would require more than a little persuasion to make the professor bestow his blessing with that genial warmth with which we like to see in our fathers-in-law's elect. "'You don't think,' I said, "'that time, the great healer, and so on, he won't feel kindlier disposed towards me, say, in a month's time?' "'Of course he might,' said Phyllis, but she spoke doubtfully. "'He strikes me, from what I have seen of him, as a man of moods. I might do something one of these days which would completely alter his views. We will hope for the best.' "'About telling father.' "'Need we, do you think?' I said. "'Yes, we must. I couldn't bear to think that I was keeping it from him.' I don't think I've ever kept anything from him in my life. Nothing bad, I mean. You count this among your darker crimes, then? I was looking at it from father's point of view. He will be awfully angry. I don't know how I shall begin telling him. Good heavens! I cried. You surely don't think I'm going to let you do that? Keep safely out of the way while you tell him? Not much! I'm coming back with you now, and we'll break the bad news together. No, not tonight. He may be tired and rather cross. We had better wait till tomorrow. You might speak to him in the morning. Where shall I find him? He is certain to go to the beach before breakfast for a swim. Good. I'll be there. Eucridge, I said when I got back, I want your advice. It stirred him like a trumpet-blast. I suppose when a man is in the habit of giving unsolicited counsel to everyone he meets, it is as invigorating as an electric shock to him to be asked for it spontaneously. "'Bring it out, laddie,' he replied cordially. "'I'm with you. Here, come along into the garden, and state your case.' This suited me. It is always easier to talk intimately in the dark— and I did not wish to be interrupted by the sudden entrance of the hired man or Mrs. Beale, of which there was always a danger indoors. We walked down to the paddock. Eucridge lit a cigar. "'Eucridge,' I said, "'I'm engaged.' "'What?' A huge hand whistled through the darkness and smote me heavily between the shoulder-blades. "'By Jove, old boy, I wish you luck. Pawn my Sam I do.' Best thing in the world for you. Bachelors are mere excrescences. Never knew what happiness was till I married. When's the wedding to be? That's where I want your advice. What you might call a difficulty has arisen about the wedding. It's like this. I'm engaged to Phyllis Derrick. Derrick? Derrick? You can't have forgotten her. Good Lord, what eyes some men have! Why, if I'd only seen her once, I should have remembered her all my life. I know now, rather a pretty girl, with blue eyes. I stared at him blankly. It was not much good, as he could not see my face, but it relieved me. Of course, yes, continued Eucridge. She came to dinner here one night with her father, that fat little buffer. As you were careful to call him to his face at the time, confound you, it was that that started all the trouble. Trouble? 
What trouble? Why, her father. By Jove, I remember now. So worried lately, old boy, that my memory's gone groggy. Of course, her father fell into the sea and you fished him out. Why, damn, it's like the stories you read. It's also very like the stories I used to write. But they had one point about them which this story hasn't. They invariably ended happily, with the father joining the heroes and heroine's hands and giving his blessing. Unfortunately, in the present case, that doesn't seem likely to happen. The old man won't give his consent? I'm afraid not. I haven't asked him yet, but the chances are against it. But why? What's the matter with you? You're an excellent chap, sound in wind and limb. And didn't you tell me once that if you married, you came into a pretty sizable bit of money? Yes, I do. That part of it is all right. Eucridge's voice betrayed perplexity. I don't understand this thing, old horse, he said. I should have thought the old boy would have been all over you. Why, damn! I never heard anything like it. You saved his life. You fished him out of the water. After chucking him in, that's the trouble. You chucked him in? By proxy. I explained. Eugridge, I regret to say, laughed in a way that must have been heard miles away in distant villages in Devonshire. You devil! he bellowed. "'Pon my Sam, old horse, to look at you one would have never thought you had it in you.' "'I can't help looking respectable. "'What are you going to do about it?' "'That's where I wanted your advice. "'You're a man of resource. "'What would you do in my place?' Eugridge tapped me impressively on the shoulder. "'Laddie,' he said, there's one thing that'll carry you through any mess. And that is... Cheek, my boy, cheek. Gall. Nerve. Why, take my case. I never told you how I came to marry, did I? I thought not. Well, it was this way. It'll do you a bit of good, perhaps, to hear the story. For, mark you, blessings weren't going cheap in my case, either. You know Millie's Aunt Elizabeth the female who wrote that letter. Well, when I tell you that she was Millie's nearest relative, and that it was her consent I had to snaffle, you'll see that I was faced with a bit of a problem. Let's have it, I said. Well, the first time I ever saw Millie was in a first-class carriage on the underground. I'd got a third-class ticket, by the way. The carriage was full, and I got up and gave her my seat and, as I hung suspended over her by a strap, damn, I fell in love with her then and there. You've no conception, laddie, how indescribably ripping she looked, in a sort of blue dress with a bit of red in it, and a hat with thingummies. Well, we both got out at South Kensington. By that time I was gasping for air, and saw that the thing wanted looking into. I'd never had much time to bother about women, but I realized that this must not be missed. I was in love, old horse. It comes over you quite suddenly, like a tidal wave. I know, I know, good heavens, you can't tell me anything about that. Well, I followed her. 
she went to a house in Thurlow Square. I waited outside and thought it over. I had to get into that shanty and make her acquaintance, if they threw me out on my ear. So I rang the bell. "'Is Lady Lickenhall at home?' I asked. "'You spot the devilish cunning of the ruse, what?' My asking for a female with a title was to make them think I was one of the upper ten. "'How were you dressed?' I could not help asking. "'Oh, it was one of my frock-coat days.' I'd been to see a man about tutoring his son, and by a merciful dispensation of providence there was a fellow living in the same boarding-house with me who was about my build, and had a frock-coat, and he had lent it to me. At least he hadn't exactly lent it to me, but I knew where he kept it, and he was out at the time. There was nothing the matter with my appearance. Quite the young duke, I assure you, laddie, down to the last button. "'Is Lady Lickenhall at home?' I asked. "'No,' said the maid. "'Nobody that name here. "'This is Lady Lakenheath's house.' "'So, you see, I had a bit of luck at the start, "'because the names were a bit alike. "'Well, I got the maid to show me in somehow, "'and once in you can bet I talked for all I was worth. "'Kept up a flow of conversation about being misdirected "'and coming to the wrong house.' went away and called a few days later, gradually wormed my way in, called regularly, spied on their movements, met him at every theatre they went to, and bowed and finally got away with Milly before her aunt knew what was happening, or who I was, or what I was doing, or anything. And what's the moral? Why, go in like a mighty rushing wind! Bustle em. Don't give em a moment's rest or time to think or anything. Why, if I'd given Milly's Aunt Elizabeth time to think, where should we have been? Not at Combe Regis together, I'll bet. You heard that letter, and know what she thinks of me now, on reflection. If I'd gone slow and played a timid waiting game, she'd have thought that before I married Milly instead of afterwards. I give you my honest word, laddie, that there was a time, towards the middle of our acquaintance, after she had stopped mixing me up with the man who had came to wind the clocks, when that woman ate out of my hand. Twice, on two separate occasions, she actually asked my advice about feeding her toy Pomeranian. Well, that shows you. Bustle em, laddie, bustle em. Eucridge, I said, you inspire me. You would inspire a caterpillar. I will go to the professor. I was going anyhow, but now I shall go aggressively. I will prize a father's blessing out of him if I have to do it with a crowbar. That's the way to talk, old horse. Don't beat about the bush. Tell him exactly what you want and stand no nonsense. If you don't see what you want in the window, ask for it. Where did you think of tackling him? Phyllis tells me that he always goes for a swim before breakfast. I thought of going down to-morrow and waylaying him. "'You couldn't do better, by Jove,' said Eugrid suddenly. "'I'll tell you what I'll do, laddie. I wouldn't do it for everybody, but I'd look on you as a favorite son. I'll come with you and help break the ice.' "'What?' "'Don't you be under any delusion, old horse,' said Eugrid paternally. "'You haven't got an easy job in front of you.' and what you'll need more than anything else 
when you really get down to brass tacks, is a wise, kindly man of the world at your elbow, to whoop you on when your nerve fails, and generally stand in your corner and see that you get a fair show. But it's rather an intimate business. Never mind. Take my tip and have me at your side. I can say things about you that you would be too modest to say for yourself. I can plead your case, laddie. I can point out in detail all that the old boy will be missing if he gives you the missing balk. Well, that's settled, then. About eight tomorrow morning, what? I'll be there, my boy. A swim will do me good. End of chapter 18 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mark Nelson Love Among the Chickens by P. G. Woodhouse Chapter 19 Asking Papa Reviewing the matter later, I could see that I made one or two blunders in my conduct of the campaign to win over Professor Derrick. In the first place, I made a bad choice of time and place. At the moment this did not strike me. It is a simple matter, I reflected, for a man to pass another by haughtily and without recognition when they meet on dry land. But when the said man, being, it should be remembered, an indifferent swimmer, is accosted in the water and out of his depth, the feat becomes a hard one. It seemed to me that I should have a better chance with the professor in the water than out of it. My second mistake, and this was brought home to me almost immediately, was in bringing Eucridge along. Not that I really brought him along, it was rather a case of being unable to shake him off. When he met me on the gravel outside the house at a quarter to eight on the following morning, clad in a dingy mackintosh, which, swinging open, revealed a purple bathing-suit, I confess that my heart sank. Unfortunately, all my efforts to dissuade him from accompanying me were attributed by him to a pardonable nervousness, or, as he put it, to the needle. "'Buck up, laddie!' he roared encouragingly. I had anticipated this. Something seemed to tell me that your nerve would go when it came to the point. You're deuced lucky, old horse, to have a man like me at your side. Why, if you were alone, you wouldn't have a word to say for yourself. you just gape at the man and yammer. But I'm with you, laddie, I'm with you. If your flow of conversation dries up, count on me to keep the thing going." And so it came about that, having reached the cob and spying in the distance the gray head of the professor bobbing about on the face of the waters, we dived in and swam rapidly towards him. His face was turned in the opposite direction when we came up with him. He was floating peacefully on his back, and it was plain that he had not observed our approach. For when, treading water easily in his rear, I wished him good morning in my most conciliatory note, 
he stood not upon the order of his sinking, but went under like so much pig-iron. I waited courteously until he rose to the surface again, when I repeated my remark. He expelled the last remnant of water from his mouth with a wrathful splutter, and cleared his eyes with the back of his hand. I confessed to a slight feeling of apprehension as I met his gaze. Nor was my uneasiness diminished by the spectacle of Eucridge splashing tactfully in the background like a large seal. Eucridge so far had made no remarks. He had dived in very flat, and I imagined that his breath had not yet returned to him. He had the air of one who intends to get used to his surroundings before trusting himself to speech. "'The water is delightfully warm,' I said. "'Oh, it's you!' said the professor. And I could not cheat myself into the belief that he had spoke cordially. Eucridge snorted loudly in the offing. The professor turned sharply, as if anxious to observe this marine phenomenon, and the annoyed gurgle which he gave showed that he was not approving of Eucridge either. I did not approve of Eucridge myself. I wished he had not come. Eucridge, in the water, lacks dignity. I felt that he prejudiced my case. "'You are swimming splendidly this morning,' I went on perseveringly, feeling that an ounce of flattery is worth a pound of rhetoric. "'If,' I added, "'you will allow me to say so.' "'I will not,' he snapped. "'I—' Here a small wave noticed that his mouth was open, stepped in. "'I wish,' he resumed warmly, "'as I said in me letter, to have nothing to do with you. I consider that you have behaved in a manner that can only be described as abominable, and I will thank you to leave me alone.' "'But allow me. I will not allow you, sir. I will allow you nothing. Is it not enough to make me the laughing-stock?' the butt, sir, of this town, without pursuing me in this way when I wish to enjoy a quiet swim? Now, laddie, laddie, said Eucridge, placing a large hand on his shoulder, these are harsh words. Be reasonable. Think before you speak. You little know. Go to the devil, said the professor. I wish to have nothing to do with either of you. I should be glad if you would cease this persecution— persecution, sir. His remarks, which I have placed on paper as if they were continuous and uninterrupted, were punctuated in reality by a series of gasps and puffings, as he received and rejected the successors of the wave he had swallowed at the beginning of our little chat. The art of conducting conversation while in the water is not given to every swimmer. This he seemed to realize, for, as if to close the interview, he proceeded to make his way as quickly as he could to the shore. Unfortunately, his first dash brought him squarely up against Eucridge, who, not having expected the collision, clutched wildly at him and took him below the surface again. They came up a moment later on the worst terms. "'Are you trying to drown me, sir?' barked the professor. "'My dear old horse,' said Eucridge complainingly, it's a little hard. You might look where you're going. You grappled with me. You took me by surprise, laddie. Rid yourself of the impression that you're playing water polo. But, Professor, I said, 
joining the group and treading water, one moment. I could have ducked him, but for the reflection that my prospects of obtaining his consent to my engagement would scarcely have been enhanced thereby. "'But, Professor,' I said, "'one moment.' "'Go away, sir. I have nothing to say to you.' "'But he has lots to say to you,' said Eukridge. "'Now's the time, old horse,' he added encouragingly to me. "'Spill the news.' Without preamble, I gave out the text of my address. "'I love your daughter, Phyllis, Mr. Derrick. She loves me. In fact, we are engaged.' "'Devilish well put, laddie,' said Eugridge approvingly. The professor went under as if he had been seized with a cramp. It was a little trying having to argue with a man of whom one could not predict with certainty that at any given moment he would not be under water. It tended to spoil the flow of one's eloquence. The best of arguments is useless if the listener suddenly disappears in the middle of it. "'Stick to it, old horse,' said Eugridge. "'I think you're going to bring it off.' I stuck to it. "'Mr. Derrick,' I said, as his head emerged, "'you are naturally surprised.' "'You would be,' said Eugridge. "'We don't blame you,' he added handsomely. "'You, you, you!' So far from cooling the professor, liberal doses of water seemed to make him more heated. "'You impudent scoundrel!' My reply was more gentlemanly, more courteous, on a higher plane altogether. I said winningly, "'Cannot we let bygones be bygones?' From his remarks I gathered that we could not. I continued." I was under the unfortunate necessity of having to condense my speech. I was not able to let myself go as I could have wished, for time was an important consideration. Ere long, swallowing water at his present rate, the professor must inevitably become waterlogged. "'I have loved your daughter,' I said rapidly, "'ever since I first saw her.' "'And he's a capital chap,' interjected Eugridge. "'One of the best!' "'Known him for years. You'll like him. "'I learned last night that she loved me, "'but she will not marry me without your consent. "'Stretch your arms out straight from the shoulders "'and fill your lungs well, and you can't sink. "'So I have come this morning to ask for your consent.' "'Give it,' advised Eugridge. "'Couldn't do better. A very sound fellow. "'Pots of money, too. "'At least he will have when he marries.' I know we haven't been on the best of terms lately. For heaven's sake, don't try to talk or you'll sink. The fault, I said generously, was mine. Well put, said Eugridge. But when you have heard my explanation, I am sure you will forgive me. There, I told you so. He reappeared some few feet to the left. I swam up and resumed. "'When you left us so abruptly after our little dinner-party, "'Come again some night,' said Eucrids cordially, "'any time you're passing. "'You put me in a very awkward position. "'I was desperately in love with your daughter, "'and as long as you were in the frame of mind in which you had left, "'I could not hope to find an opportunity of revealing my feelings to her.' "'Revealing feelings is good,' said Eucrids approvingly. "'Neat!' "'You see what a fix I was in, don't you? "'Keep your arms well out. 
I thought for hours and hours to try and find some means of bringing about a reconciliation. You wouldn't believe how hard I thought. Got as thin as a corkscrew, said Eugridge. At last, seeing you fishing one morning when I was on the cob, it struck me all of a sudden. You know how it is, said Eugridge. All of a sudden, that the very best way would be to arrange a little boating accident. I was confident that I could rescue you all right. Here I paused, and he seized the opportunity to curse me, briefly, with a wary eye on an incoming wavelet. If it hadn't been for the inscrutable workings of Providence, which has a mania for upsetting everything, all would have been well. In fact, all was well till you found out. Always the way, said Eugrid sadly. Always the way. You young blackguard! He managed to slip past me and made for the shore. Look at the thing from the standpoint of a philosopher, old horse, urged Eugridge, splashing after him. The fact that the rescue was arranged oughtn't to matter. I mean to say, you didn't know it at the time, so, relatively, it was not. And you were genuinely saved from a watery grave and all that sort of thing. I had not imagined Eugridge capable of such an excursion into metaphysics. I saw the truth of his line of argument so clearly that it seemed to me impossible for anyone else to get confused over it. I had certainly pulled the professor out of the water, and the fact that I had first caused him to be pushed in had nothing to do with the case. Either a man is a gallant rescuer, or he is not a gallant rescuer. There is no middle course. I had saved his life, for he would certainly have drowned if left to himself and I was entitled to his gratitude. That was all there was to be said about it. These things both Eucridge and I tried to make plain as we swam along, but whether it was that the salt water he had swallowed had dulled the professor's normally keen intelligence, or that our power of stating a case was too weak, the fact remains that he reached the beach an unconvinced man. "'Then may I consider,' I said, that your objections are removed, I have your consent?" He stamped angrily, and his bare foot came down on a small sharp pebble. With a brief exclamation he seized his foot in one hand and hopped up the beach. While hopping he delivered his ultimatum, probably the only instance on record of a father adopting this attitude in dismissing a suitor. "'You may not!' he cried. "'You may consider no such thing!' My objections were never more absolute. You detain me in the water, sir, till I am blue, sir, blue with cold, in order to listen to the most preposterous and impudent nonsense I ever heard. This was unjust. If he had listened attentively from the first and avoided interruptions and had not behaved like a submarine, we should have got through the business in half the time. I said so. Don't "'Talk to me, sir,' he replied, hobbling off to his dressing-tent. "'I will not listen to you. I have nothing to do with you. I consider you impudent, sir.' "'I assure you it was unintentional.' "'Ish!' he said. "'Being the first occasion and the last on which I have ever heard that remarkable monosyllable produced from the mouth of a man.' And he vanished into his tent."
"'Laddie,' said Eucharid solemnly, "'do you know what I think?' "'Well?' "'You haven't clicked the old horse,' said Eucharid. End of chapter 19「Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.